Hello and welcome back to Rocket Button. On today's show, we are joined by Roy Samuel. Now, Roy is the founder and CEO of Connected. He's an angel investor, startup mentor, and an all-round awesome guy. Uh, I'm not going to give away too much, but he's really insightful and knows everything there is to know about angel investing. So sit back and enjoy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd mentioned that your your mother was uh, from Hungary and your father was a bus driver, um, or and um, and and you know you've you've obviously uh, come along on this entrepreneurial journey. So I'd be really interested to, to hear from you. When was your first ever business experience? And maybe a bit about your background, how you grew up, and kind of what led you to to kind of pursue the entrepreneurial path, and some of the challenges that you've had along the way. And um, yeah, just if you'd like to just. Yeah, tell us a bit about you. Yeah, of course, absolutely. And th- thanks, guys, for telling me a bit about yourselves as well. And it, it is, I really like the whole concept of that, you know, three generations of entrepreneurs and, and very, very cool. So, um, yeah, big fan of what you guys are doing. But, um, I mean, do you want me to start from the top in terms of, you know, upbringing and, and, and how I got into, uh, initially into real sport or, or just go top line and we can dive into things after? I, I think um, it would be really good for our listeners to hear kind of, you, you know, even as far back as your childhood, you know, and like I said, your first experience with business, when did it happen? Um, yeah, so I think, sure. and, and maybe just, you know, you can keep it relatively brief, high level, but um, just to give our listeners a flavor of kind of who you are, where you came from, you know, uh, you know, did you have a privileged background or not? You know, just a little bit yeah, about your, yeah, your, your upbringing and, and where it led you today. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for that, James. So essentially, I mean, I grew up in a very hardworking home. Uh, as, as you said just there, James, you know, my mother grew up in communist Hungary. Um, she escaped during the 70s to Glasgow, which at that time was um, you know, not, not a great place to be either necessarily. And that's where she met my dad, who had been a long distance lorry driver, been a bus driver. He had, he was, he's a really intelligent guy and, and, and very, very talented in many ways. But like myself, suffered uh, with severe ADHD, which at that time, without any understanding of what that was or, or how to deal with that, meant he couldn't really hold down jobs, couldn't really work on things for a particularly long period of time. But but he did eventually get into becoming a business owner. He worked his way up from being a taxi driver into actually sort of buying out a, a very small taxi firm and, and made his first bit of money that way before moving down to London. But when I was seven or eight years old, um, seven or eight years old, we lost everything. Um, my dad has got turned over by a business partner. You know, th- these sorts of things happen. Um, but it's weird because when you're a child, you you notice it in very strange ways. And that one year, you know, maybe you go on holiday and there's big meals with family. And the next year, it's all a bit, you know, a, a bit bit sparse and a bit uh, a bit different. So you notice in that way. But as you grow up, you start to realize those things and when I look at my dad sort of having to start again from absolute zero um, at, at the age of you know 48 um, and the next period of time being incredibly difficult where we you know we didn't really have a lot um, I was always very cognizant of the fact that I would have to work incredibly hard for everything um, and you know my dad kept on plugging away and, and when I finally turned 18 19 when he was sort of 58, 59, um, everything really clicked and his businesses took off. And, you know, so from, from a very young age, I had exposure to the ups and downs of, of what being an entrepreneur was and, and the potential upsides, but the, you know, the reality of the downsides as well. Um, speaking of the ADHD thing, it was something really important for me to deal with at an early age. I think I was going to go down that 
that route as well went from sort of nearly being kicked out of school at, at the age of 15 to finally getting the diagnosis with, with ADHD at that time and, and understanding a lot of patterns of thoughts and understanding how to deal with those things and managing to recorrect um, and, and really be able to start working very, very hard, which was, which was massively beneficial um, through to university and then quite organically founding Real Sport when I was studying my master's down in London, um, which is, you know, which was a great learning experience and, and, and something which I, I look forward to going into a bit of depth with you guys as we go on. Interesting. So you, okay, so you ended up, so you did pursue a degree uh, and a master's degree. Um, how do you think university impacted your, you know, your journey? Uh, what, what, what's your relationship with, you know, the traditional education system? Um, do you have any comments uh, around that? Yeah, I think it's... Uh... It's very complex and it doesn't make sense in terms of the traditional education system because you can't assume that everyone learns in the same ways, everyone benefits in the same ways. I never went to school and I would do all my learning at home. So I, you know, whether it was at university, whether it was during my A-levels, I, I, I really rarely went to school um, and, and had to do all the learning myself. But I found that was much more beneficial and I was much more intent on sort of enjoying myself being younger and working very hard in short periods of time coming up to exams in the way that you know so many people do but i found that actually that was the right way for me to work so i i, I think there needs to be some flexibility there but it's a difficult one isn't it mm. okay that's that's re that's really interesting that, that that's i mean that's in of itself kind of an untraditional traditional education experience if you did it did it at home but but clearly you were a self-starter um, and you knew what had to get done. So wh where do you think your drive comes from? Where, where, where does it come, you know, even from a young age, uh, even being able to have the discipline to learn at home, um, yeah, where, does the, where does your drive come from, do you think? Or where did it come from? It's a really good question. I think seeing a lot of people around, you know, you grow up in London and you see a lot of privileged people around you, right? And because of the way society is structured, you want those things. You know, you are, you are raised in a way, even by media or by society, to say these are the things you should be aspiring to. And most of them are based around consumerism. And if you don't have that growing up, you feel like, although in reality you're not, you feel like you're missing out. You know, you really feel like you want those things. And I think not coming from a privileged background, um, but wanting to have the things that people around me had, um, although it sounds very materialistic, but I think when you're young and, and those feelings... And that feeling of missing out really does become embedded. I think it does lead to a lot of drive. And I also think a lot of, and I see this with a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, people are scared of not fulfilling their potential. And I think that's a big thing for me. I, I, I really am, you know, I would hate to, to waste or hate, not, hate to not work as hard as I can to see where I can get to, you know? It's, it's almost like a juxtaposition because you've got some folks that don't realize their full potential. So they don't even know what they're capable of. And then the, the other folks, like you said, um, on the other side that, you know, it's like, how do they get to their full potential? Uh, it's like, I'm sure yeah. there's both camps. That's really interesting. Yeah, Absolutely. Roy, um, I just wanted to pull something out that you mentioned in your uh, early kind of story. You mentioned that your dad, uh, I think it was the age of 48, kind of went back to, to nothing. Mm. Um, I think that's a real kind of yeah demonstration of resilience. Would you say that your dad has been a kind of a real role model for you and he's sort of a big part of where your drive came from? Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately if someone's your 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 father, they're gonna have so much of 
you in them, right? Or, or, or the other way around, you're, you're gonna have so much of them in you. And I think it's so important to understand where you came from. And even if you don't always see eye to eye, because not everyone does, it's really important to understand wh where you come from and understand the best parts of that, the hard parts of it. I also think, you know, entrepreneurialism can, and being a successful entrepreneur can also make you a difficult person. It can make you a difficult person in, in other areas of your life. So I think um, there's lots of things to be taken from, from growing up with those role models. And there's good and bad in, in all of these things. But I think that determination to start again from nothing at the age of 48, um, whenever you, I've had setbacks in my life, you know, that's the sort of thing that you want to channel. You know, that's the sort of thing which you want to be able to say, this is doable. You can get to somewhere incredible even when it feels like it's too late. I know it's, it's crazy, and Harry, I'd love your, your view on this, but I think the pressures now on younger people to achieve are so much higher than ever. You know, if, you, if you've not started your own business now by the age of, of 25, it's almost like you know, you're, you're, you're falling behind. So to, to be able to draw on that experience of seeing someone at 48 have to, you know, he was unemployable. He, he literally didn't, he wasn't able to work for a year. You know, had to, to set up his own thing again. I think it's a great, um, it's a it's a great lesson to learn from. Absolutely, no, I completely agree, and I think your point about sort of the pressures on pe people nowadays, um, generations, and all those different sort of age groups. But I think also we were speaking to Daniel last week, and it's that sort of instant gratification that you see all over social media and Instagram, and it's this sort of people are feeling the pressure because they see all these accounts saying, "Oh, instant success! I'm doing this. I'm sitting on a Lamborghini," and actually. It's not that simple, um, and you really do need that hard drive and that hard work, as as you will know very well. Yeah, very well. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I wanted to actually chat about real sports a little bit. Um, so you mentioned the eighteen nineteen. I think that's when. Is that when you started? So no, I think we founded it when I was I was twenty three. So I went through uni, um, had a great experience there. Ended up being involved with a massive um, charity organisation whilst I was there, which is great and something I'm really really passionate about. And we were yeah. able to raise loads and loads of money for lots of, of different charities. We actually managed to set a, a world record for the most amount, um, the highest amount of money raised for charities by student-run uh, charity yeah. organizations. We, we actually managed to raise about 1.8 mil for charities wow. in, in 2013. It was amazing, and I'm, I'm super passionate about that, um, which is great. And then it, that also really helped me start to formalize a lot more of that entrepreneurialism because it was running an organization as a student. It was a lot of time management. You know, during the third year of uni, it can be a really – um, intense time even without the, the additional stuff so that that was brilliant and um, really loved that and super passionate about charity still um, and then off the back of that went to, to study my master's and founded Real Sport when, when I was there. Amazing amazing so can you just give our audience a little bit of background on what Real Sport is sorry and just a what is the place a platform um, just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah so it's essentially a content creation toolkit helping people create podcasts and videos and other stuff, and then a community within that platform to share all the content with. And we applied that to the sports and esports market. And I'm a massive sports fan myself, and we had a bit of a, an inkling around esports being a, a good market to get into. And we had some really great gro growth on the sports side and, and loved doing that and got to, to do some great stuff um, within that sector. But after about a year, we could just see the esports side was picking up in, in, in the biggest way. So we 
shut down the traditional sports operations, focused purely on the esports side. So we, so we were right, a uh, bit of right time, right place. Very, very fortunate with that because it was just when a lot of corporates were starting to pay attention to esports um, and that you know millennial demographic. Because you know, this was back in. 2014, 15, when I think Gen Z was um, maybe just even like a fledgling term at the time. So it's still people talking about millennials then. Um, and yeah, we, we were really fortunate and managed to grow um, a quite large user base. I think we ended up with just, just under nine and a half million monthly users, which was really, really exciting. Um, so sort of UK, US and Australia, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That is, could, can you remember your first user? but do you know what's interesting um talking about getting that first user we were so intent on you know network selling in the way you know using like using our network just in terms of our friends so day one we we i remember we day one we got to like 53 users because we got all of our friends to sign up on, on day one as you were yeah 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 sorry we all still here? Sorry, I, th- I think my uh, internet went funny. Yeah, yeah. still here. <clears throat> okay, so, and then from, from then it just, uh, it just went from there, did it? From the 53 users to uh, it just suddenly started growing exponentially yeah, by the so sound of it. Yes, yeah, so we bootstrapped for a really long time. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't, as we said before, you know, I didn't have a network at all. I didn't even know what raising investment was, let alone how to do it or know anyone with the money to invest um and you know when you don't have a network of rich people who strategically align with what you're doing it can be really tough so um we bootstrapped for a long time i think we founded the business in january 2015 something like that and we didn't raise any investment till april 16 so we were really really bootstrapped for a long time which was you know fantastic learning experience but we managed to get to about 150,000 monthly users before we we raised that investment so that was over 15 months and then yeah it, it was able to scale quite significantly after we raised our first funding okay interesting so um when when did you just in your in your younger years when did you hit your first glass ceiling um just just talking about um was it challenging to raise the capital uh, or did it come quite easily? Uh, because we, when we talked offline before the podcast, you were talking about, uh, we just mentioned the, the, the underdogs and, uh, and uh, you're not coming from a background of privilege. Uh, and, um, you know, how, how do you go about connecting with those investors? Because I think it's a good segue because we'd love to learn about Connected and what you're doing there. Because I think that's really disruptive and, uh, and will help a lot of young entrepreneurs like Harry and even myself uh, connect with, you know, investors uh, that are outside our sphere of influence, which, you know, just speaking from my own experience, uh, I didn't grow up as a, in, in a wealthy family, you know, and I don't have very many rich friends. <laughs> so I mean, obviously things change as you get older and, and you, your network expands. But can you comment about the glass ceiling or anything that kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of any like light bulb moment to just kind of found connected? Yeah, it's really interesting. So. Um the way that we were actually able to raise our first bit of funding or get our first bit of money committed was actually through networks that I built whilst I was studying my master's at LSE. And it was primarily from um, international students, you know? So uh, that was a real crash course in understanding actually the power of network. And, you know, you hear all these people say, network is your net worth and all these other, you know, horrendous sort of taglines that you hear banded around by the, you know, the LinkedIn influencers and whatnot. But, you know, 
genuinely, I think there's, it was such a learning experience of, of seeing how much easier things can be when, when you do have a network. Um, and it was one of the things that really made me passionate about founding Connected, which is the whole idea that, you know, especially when the UK has got these amazing tax benefits like SEIS and EIS, but if you don't know anyone with the capital, it doesn't help. And if you don't know anyone with the capital who also strategically aligns with you, it's not necessarily the most ideal type of investment. So the idea of, of Connected, of being able to bring people together where you're connecting them on strategic value rather than gender, race, location bias, rather than the schools they went to, rather, rather than all these things, um, has its challenges, of course, but hopefully can harness a lot of good faith that I see in people to, to really try to level the playing field a bit. I think that's brilliant. And I actually think it's interesting that you've encountered that challenge during your phase with, with, with real sports. You, you struggle to, you bootstrap. And for our uh, listeners, could you just quickly explain what bootstrapping is? Yeah, sure. So bootstrapping is essentially doing as much as you can with very little funding and you funding your growth through revenue rather than external capital. So using early customers, using early adopters to fund whatever it is you're trying to do rather than go and raise investment from other sources, whether it be a bank, an angel investor or a crowdfunding platform. Awesome. Great definition. So you bootstrapped with Real Sport and then you started connected and it's all about, like you say, matching those entrepreneurs with the investors. Um, and someone in my position, I'm really interested to, to, to learn more about this because I'm at that point in my journey where I, I, I'd like to do a raise. Um, I've read about SEIS, EIS, all that thing, and you've got your network. But for someone like me, where do I start with, with going investing and sorry, raising capital? So I think research is a really important part of it. You need to understand the ideal types of people or have a framework for, for getting access to the right types of people. Because an, if you're trying to raise from, from angel investors, let's say, you know, an angel vest, an investor could mean so many different things. You can find people who are only interested in biotech and you're trying to raise for a fintech or whatever it might be. So, so much of it right now is guesswork. And it's one of the things we're trying to remove with Connected. So I think understanding who your audience is and understanding whether they, they're going to be interested in, in your proposition is, is the first part because you're just going to waste so many hours reaching out to the wrong people. And it's difficult because it's not like going to raise money from a VC where you can go onto their website and see the things that they look at and see what their investment thesis is. You know, it's, it's, it's individuals that you're approaching. So research or, you know, using a platform like connected, which, which, aims to give that information to you in a really consumable way is, is, is a big part of it because we actually did a study recently. We were surveying our own founder community and you know, founders are spending, especially at the early stage, up to 10 hours a week on investor outreach. And when you think about how many other things a founder needs to do, it's just, it's, it's just far too much time. Interesting. So research is a key part. Um, of that again through the whole process but another another point i would, would be interested is at what point is an entrepreneur ready to get investment so there's people before they've even started they've got the idea they've got the minimum viable product or they've been going for a few years at what point does it really depend on, on sort of the product you've got the vision you've got or what's the point of when you should go out and get investment that's a really good question. And I think it does completely depend on the type of proposition you have. If you're looking to build a med tech or a medical device, you know, you're going to have to go and raise money to make anything happen. 
Um, but if you've got a consumer facing proposition or, or something which you can, you know, soft, a software proposition where you can either bring in a co-founder who has got the skill set or you've got the skill set yourself, then you can do a lot with a little, you know, James is, is, um, you know, when you, when you, I'm sure, you know, obviously his story with Flexi, but there's, there's so much stuff that in the same way that I saw the real sport that you can really get done with a little. And I think that's the right way to do it because once you understand the cogs in your business, once you understand where you can extract value and, and where you can get the biggest ROI, which you really, really have to knuckle down into when you're bootstrapping, then when you go and raise your, your arguments so much more compelling because then you can say to an investor, well, look, after, after the learnings of the last year, of the last eight months, whatever it is, we can see that if you put some money into that, we can do this. So I think it's once you've got something, if you, it's the sort of business which isn't requiring a lot of capital up front to get anything into market, get anything off, off, off the ground, I think it's once you can start building a compelling investment story because no one really likes an idea on a bit of paper. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. Yeah, that's really okay. So you said a couple of things that um, kind of resonated with me. So I had a little light bulb moment about, I'd say, eight nine weeks ago. Uh, I chatted to a guy called Simon Severino, who's the CEO of Strategy Sprints, and he told me that I shouldn't be spending any time on, on basically raising capital. He said it's just fuel, and I, I came away from that call thinking. It was right for him to say that, but uh, but then I started thinking more, and I was thinking actually, there's people out there that. They, they do this for a living. They, they raise capital for a living. Why am I? I'm okay, I've been you know, reasonably successful. We've raised you know, £100,000 uh, for Flexi. Uh, I've, you know, the smart money conversation as far as not all money is equal and the right investment, I, I completely get that. Uh, and that's part of, you know, the, the, it's taken me longer, I guess, if I'm really honest with myself, longer to raise the capital than I probably you know, care to admit. Um, but it's just really finding the right fit um, so then, you know, so I think then our connection, Roe, I can't remember actually whether I reached out to you or you reached out to me, but I, either way, um, it just makes absolute sense. And 10 hours a week, that's me. I mean, I am the, the epitome of that entrepreneur that is spending probably way too much time or has spent way too much time in the last 12, 18 months actually, uh, you know, trying to find that perfect investor, you know, and I've, I've turned investors away that I haven't felt were, were right. Uh, and it's it's quite difficult when you really need the money, but you just have this intuition that it's not the right money. Um, could you could you comment a little bit about the the difference between um, angel investors um, and VCs and the different motivations? Because I, I kind of understand it, but certainly for our younger listeners that are looking at you know all these different funding options, 
Um, can you talk a, bit, a little bit about that um, and, and you know, uh, why it's important to the entrepreneur to kind of understand the different motivations and drivers for these different funding sources? Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's that's uh, really interesting to hear that story there as well, James, and, and one which we've heard a lot. So it makes sense. And hopefully it's a bit of, a, as you said, light bulb moment for you, which will, which will you know, allow you to focus on the really important stuff and, and keep on driving Flexi forward in, in the way that you have been. So that, that's great. Um, in terms of, of VC and Angel, so I think, um, you know, a, a lot of people hear VC and they think that that's where they want to go and approach off the bat. And everything that I've seen over the last year, especially, but from you know a few years before that as well, is VCs are just getting a bit later and later stage in, in when they're investing. Um, a lot of a lot of them who position themselves as early stage VCs. I mean, you know, you're 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 not really ready to raise venture capital until you are into scaling mode already. You know, maybe 50k MRR. Um, some, something to that level. So I think if you are thinking of raising your your first funding round and you're not quite there yet, in many ways, put VC out of your mind. Um, keep, keep it keep it in your mind in terms of the long term strategy if you are looking to build a venture back business. But angel investors are going to be the first focused. One of the main drivers of that is VCs obviously aren't investing their own money; they're investing the money of their their sort of partners and looking to build a. a you know, great return profile for them over the, the period of the fund and will invest based on making 10 investments where nine of them probably won't do anything and one will do incredibly well. Whereas angel investors are, from what I've seen, a lot more driven to, to make the ones that they do invest in be winners. They they, they are much more emotionally involved than, than a VC would be because they're investing their own money. So it makes sense, you know, no surprises there. But for me, you know, what, what a, a, an angel investor should do is capital plus expertise, industry-specific knowledge, contact networks. Capital is at most, you know, one third of what an angel investor, a good angel investor should bring, in my opinion. Now, obviously, if, if someone puts themselves out as a silent angel investor, it, it's purely going to be about the capital. But I think it's more exciting to be working with angels who know your space, can help, want to get involved. And, and for me, that's a lot better. Um, I think the other thing is angel investors may be okay with a business going for a, a 30 or 40 million pound exit, you know, because they're getting in at a stage where that's an amazing return. But for a VC, unless you're projecting your business to be able to do, you know, a hundred million exit minimum, I don't think it's of interest to them. So I think if you are planning to do the venture back thing and you do want to want to go and raise VC funding, you do need to make sure you're playing in a market which is which is big enough. Um, I see a lot of brilliant businesses which are a bit of a niche which won't get venture backed because it's it's just purely not got a wide enough market. Mm. That's really interesting. The, the emotional um, piece with angels is is really imp- is a uh, is really key. And actually, I was thinking that, but you just you just said it. Uh, the drivers are different. Uh, they're not looking for a thousand x return like the VCs might, but uh, they're obviously looking for a really healthy return. Uh, and those angels that um, can actually roll, you know, be willing to roll up their sleeves and really help this business succeed, or or certainly go and shout about the business to their network, uh, you know, that that's uh, that's really helpful to the entrepreneur. And I agree, the the capital is one third of potentially what they can bring. Um, and uh, you know. And my experience at Flexi was to, you know, to put to, uh, together a really experienced advisory board and invest, angel investment network 
and I'm still, you know, on that journey. And, and I, I'd also say that just from, and I'd be interesting to hear your thoughts, uh, Roy, on this, but um, as far as, um, you know what, I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it actually was pretty good too. It was pretty, that's, my, that's my ADHD kicking in. Yeah, oh, dear. Oh, dear. I remember it in a second. Oh. Right, I wanted to just quickly jump in uh, with a with a question. Now, earlier on, you, you mentioned about the, the government scheme, SEIS and EIS. Um, now, could you tell us a bit more about that? What is it? How how can someone like myself apply for that? Um, yeah. And what are the real benefits behind it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is a brilliant scheme. It is an amazing scheme. So EIS, I believe, was brought in in the 80s. And then SEIS was brought in in 2000. 2012 so it's a bit more more recent but they're amazing schemes and it's the seed enterprise investment scheme and the enterprise investment scheme SAS and EIS and they're essentially a set of tax incentives for private investors in the UK and it's designed for startups um, where it will essentially allow the first £150,000 that they fundraise will have the SEIS tax benefit tied into them and what that means to an investor is if you invest a hundred thousand pounds on seis you can get fifty thousand pounds off of your your next tax bill essentially and if you know worst case scenario and, and although no investor would ever hope this be the case but but if the business that you invest in doesn't work out you also get a, a very high amount of loss relief so the actual true exposure of an seis investment is minimal and then with an EIS, which is up to 5 million funding, so your next 4.85 mil, as it were, um, is a 30% offset of tax with a 30% offset on loss relief as well. And with SEIS, the SEIS shares are also free from inheritance tax. So if you were to make an investment and pass away after two years, and you know those shares get inherited by younger generation th those shares would be free of inheritance tax wow interesting very interesting um and is it that those that invest say for example get approval for seis who can invest is it family friends is it is it a network is it businesses who can take part in that scheme and invest in say my company so it's pretty much anyone other than we and, and it's quite strange that's the case but pretty much anyone other than uh a vertical investment so it can't be a parent who makes investment right. in a child's company which is um strange considering that the another seis investment would be free from inheritance tax but in terms of the initial investment rather than the passing of shares uh yeah it can't, mm -hmm. it can't be a vertical investment but otherwise yeah friends um cousins uncles brothers right um yeah absolutely and they have to be accredited okay. they, they have to be making a certain amount of money or have a certain amount of liquid liquid assets to invest on the SEIS, that's my understanding. It's, it's really interesting, James, really, really interesting. And I was actually having this conversation with someone the other day about structural inequalities that exist within the UK. And it's a real gray area. It's a real gray area around investing in startups because there are certain regulations and you know, they're really important and you've got to make sure that you're, you're standing by them. But there are certain regulations which say you can only invest in startups if you are 
a self-certified high net worth or sophisticated investor. Hundred grand a year, yeah, hundred grand a year or two hundred fifty thousand in uh, in assets, isn't it? Without your house, in 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 addition to your house, in addition to your house, or you've been working in in finance for ten years. Okay. Okay. Which, which okay. in which case you're probably going to you know have the first uh, set of criteria as well. And for me, when you see startups being the biggest wealth creator that they're put, you know that that they could be, if you yeah. made a small investment at the start of a unicorn, I mean that could that could be generational wealth you're creating. Yeah, um, it feels very unfair, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's re- I've never ever thought about that. I always thought that it was the fact that there was enough tax. You know, they'd already paid the tax. So it basically costs the government nothing, basically, by giving a 50% return, you know, uh, yeah, uh, offset on the SCIS. Uh, they've already paid the tax. So it's kind of a break even. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that, that is true from a purely economic perspective, but it's not positioned that way, is it? You no. know, it's positioned about protecting retail investors. But when retail investors aren't protected from putting their, their pay packet in a, in a fixed odd betting machine, it doesn't feel very fair, does it? No, that's fine. That's fine. And actually, some of the investors I've had to turn away haven't been. They've been people that haven't been earning. So if that's if that's if my understanding is wrong, they always say trust but verify. If there's a way around that, then maybe I'll go back to these people and say you can invest. It's a grey area, isn't it? It's a grey yeah. area. I I, I know that. I know lots of people who have invested in startups who do not fit those criteria. I know lots of them, but you know, it's 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 shouldn't be done in truth interesting interesting oh i remembered what i was when i was on a roll and i totally forgot my train of thought i was talking about um when you have uh, i guess angel investment um certainly in your critical phase of the business um you have a bit more or whether it's perceived or otherwise autonomy to kind of shape the business to the vision um whereas if you have the wrong money in and it might be from vc or other um you know other institutional funds you might not have the same autonomy to navigate the critical startup phase you know once once you're in scaling mode it's it's all about you know what's the cost of customer acquisition and you just need money to to kind of fuel the growth um but when you're still trying to refine your mvp um it's nice to have investors behind you that believe in the vision and kind of let you get on with it um, but help out where they're where they're needed um so that was what i was talking about this autonomy thing can you comment on that at all Sorry, James, it just dropped out, just dropped oh. out for me there. Do, oh, did it? Do you mind just going? Sorry about that. No, that's okay. It might be me. It might be me. Uh, let me just. No, it's, it's because down in Kent, and it's, I'm, I'm in a place called the, the Elam Valley at the moment, and it's like a, a micro, <laughs> it's like a microcosm, micro ecosystem. And when it rains in the valley here, it just the, the, um bandit is awful so sorry about that no it sounds it sounds like you're in a lovely place there great great place to go out for a walk i was just saying so they, when i lost my train of thought earlier i was the beauty of um working with uh angel investors and, and folks that are, you know close to the business they believe in the vision and the mission and, the, and they there's almost like there's a bit more autonomy for the founders to shape the business in its critical early stage um, in line with the vision and I'm just thinking if you take the wrong money then certainly if it's you know if the if the motivations are not aligned you might be in a position where you can't be uh, you can't you can't work with as, as much autonomy um, and it might kill the business and I have actually chatted to founders where they've taken VC money too early and it's just basically mm-hmm. ruined the business because there's all this pressure about returns 
and less yeah. about actually what you know what does the customer want and need and you know use that data to kind of shape the product and but also be true to the vision so yeah. um you know in in a perfect world and and i i'm i'm speaking from a ceo of flexi you know we haven't figured out all the answers but you know we have the investors that we do have really support us and uh and we do have that autonomy um so we you know we haven't taken any vc money and mm -hmm. part of it's strategic because we do want to grow a big business but um but part of it is you know we we're still navigating that mvp and making sure that we have the right market fit yeah yeah no, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's spot on. You know, the, the, the dream is bring on angel investors who will help you, not just give you the autonomy and freedom, but want to assist and want to help. Make it better. Um, yeah, which, which I think is great. And, and you're right, you know, as soon as you take VC, you'll have expectations on growth. You know, you can't afford to do a half year where you're retooling because you, you know, you want to build something better. You know, it's got to be very growth focused. If you're not hitting 10 to 20% month on month growth after being venture backed, you're, you're essentially in the bad books, you know? So I completely agree. Yeah. And it's funny cause I, I, I am entertaining some quite big checks at the moment and uh, you know, I'm having to do psychometric tests and all these other things. And I'm just thinking, I just, uh, you know, I'd like, you know, um, I would much, there's some money out there that I would much prefer in some ways because I'm not, I'm just thinking, okay, you know, I mean, okay, I, I might score well on the psychometric test, but it's like, you know, I can kind of anticipate what might be coming. It's like, you know, but maybe it's normal. I don't know, but I'm, I'm actually doing psychometric tests for a fund right now. Uh, so it's really you know, interesting. I've not heard it before. I've yeah. not heard that one. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing one today. <laughs> amazing yeah so I've i got think a, it's quite fun though right yeah I it think is it's quite i think so yeah yeah i think so i mean i you know i think they're fascinating i think i mean I, you always learn through these experiences don't you i just wondered if you'd uh if, yeah it, so that's not normal then that's not uh, personally i haven't heard it before but i mean I, I think there could be it depends if they are wanting to, to try and plug in advisors or something like True. that then i've i've heard that before yep. um because they want to make sure that they can plug in the right people yeah but sense. um look, sense. I, I think james you've gotten to a really good point here which is ultimately when you are raising capital there's nothing off the table in terms of requests you right. know the people writing the checks have got the right to ask whatever they want to ask you know so um i think that that's another really good point interesting so i've got another question for you so your experience from your experience as an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs uh, and also your I get mentor in virgin st startup uh, what traits do you look for in an entrepreneur what what do you think yeah I know that everyone's different and everyone has different strengths but if there's anything for our listeners to understand you know can you learn to be an entrepreneur are there any any things you look for in a, in a successful founder can you comment a little bit about that with your experience working with lots of entrepreneurs yeah of course of course and and yeah it, although i've only started mentoring in the last year it's been something that i've loved doing and I've, I've now i've been doing it virgin but also been fortunate enough to start doing it now with the uh, lse spin out um as well as london and partners and it, it's such a fulfilling thing like i really do love it um and and i think everyone's got something to offer and i think anyone can get involved with mentoring and if you're the sort of psychological type which enjoys giving back it's a great thing to do so i recommend anyone to to start exploring opportunities there because it it really can be quite fulfilling but in, in terms of of entrepreneurs i think that it might be a controversial one it might be a controversial one but there is a lot of talk about burnout and burnout is absolutely real you know it's a thing 
Most people have experienced it. But I think different people naturally have higher tolerances. And what, where that burnout point is hit will be different for different people. And there's, you know, that's just reality. Everyone's different, right? What I've seen with the more successful entrepreneurs, and this is the unfair advantage, but it could be, you know, potentially a biological one, is those who seem to have that higher threshold for stress, for workload, the ability to be hit with a million things to do and quite calmly understand how to structure, prioritize and make sure nothing's slipping through the cracks. It, it is, you know, it's, it's unfair, right? Because people who just have that natural, naturally lower tolerance to stress are obviously going to find it harder. You know, that's just, that is what it is. But I think people who have got that natural, natural higher tolerance um, and, and willingness to, to sort of make the sacrifice that goes with that, because if you've got the high tolerance to burnout, it means you will probably sacrifice a lot, you know, in terms of relationships, friendships, missing out on other things. And it's got to be something you're willing to accept. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. And like you say, it's, it's the sacrifices you will have to do if you really believe in your idea, if you really want to go on that journey. Um, you actually mentioned about a mentor and I had somebody the other day ask me, the question is, how do I find a mentor? So how do you find a mentor for our audience that maybe have an idea, but don't know how to start? How can they find themselves a mentor? There's loads of great programs out there. There's loads of great programs out there. Um, Virgin, for example, is tied into government loans. So it's tied into a, a, a government £20,000 loan where they will loan, you know, a small business owner, a startup owner. Sorry, um, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll provide it to a, um, a small business owner, a startup owner, but they'll also bring in that mentoring package as well. So you can get it through those types of schemes. But also, a lot of people, if you reach out to them, most people are happy to help. I think we've seen that more, more now with COVID than, than before. People are really seemingly willing to give each other a bit more time. And most people like to give back, but maybe I'm being a bit utopian there. Um, but I think, again, go do your research. Go find out the people who are interested in the areas that you're operating in. And just, just ping them a message. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, just to add to that as well, I think um, for those folks that on the on the journey of finding a mentor, if you can't find a mentor straight away, then you know there's some wonderful books, nonfiction books out there. You know, that's a, that's the next best thing if you can't, you know, if you don't have a mentor immediately. Uh, and there's lots of great minds that aren't even alive today, so you can actually access so much information, whether it's online or actually get a book. Um, and actually, earlier on, we talked about folks of um, you know putting themselves under a lot of pressure. Uh, not having started a business by 25. But there's actually a really good book written by Napoleon Hill, which I think was written in the 20s, called Think and Grow Rich. Bit of a crass Ooh. title, um, but he makes the point that, you know, most successful entrepreneurs actually make it in their 40s. You know, I mean, there's outliers in their 20s. Maybe that's not true for today, but um, but that that kind of it's given me a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, I read that when I was in my 30s. And I was thinking, okay, it's not too late, you know, so... Um, yeah. Uh, I would encourage people to pick up that book by Napoleon Hill. Think and Grow Rich. So, yeah. and I don't get any commissions from yeah, that. That's just, a, that's just a, <laughs> not yet, not yet. Oh yeah. No, that's great. I think that's a really good point as well. And it goes back to what I was saying with my, with my dad. You know, he he didn't make it to the thing he started at forty eight years old. Um, so it it is never too late. Yes, brilliant. One subject, which is obviously a very current subject, is, is COVID. And I think from what I read, Connected started at the beginning of 2020, which was, um, I think, March is when we went into our complete national lockdown. So how has that 
effective you? How have you had to adapt? And I guess out the other side of COVID, where, where's your vision and where do you want to take Connected? Well, we've been really fortunate. I know it's bad to say, but we, you know, when I started ideating Connected in maybe July 2019, couldn't have known that launching this platform in February 2020, where you're bringing people strategically together digitally was going to be such so well positioned for for a pandemic so we're really fortunate i think it has in many ways accelerated growth and we have been fortunate in sort of um right. you know achieving uh, over 20 percent month-on-month growth and we just had the the 50th fundraise happen through the platform recently which is great um so we've been very fortunate in that way brilliant now well, that's good to hear and how has investment habits changed since covid and where do you see it going uh, moving forward I think it's been an amazing, amazing change that one location bias, which I think used to be such a big thing, seems to be minimizing a bit. So we've seen businesses in Northern Ireland, in the Southwest, in in Sheffield, in Scotland, getting investment from London-based angel investors, where I think that that would have been quite, where they've never met face-to-face as well. You know, because one of the big issues is someone's going to have to get on a train down to London and get in with a busy schedule. And I think from a location bias perspective, the changes in investment in terms of people investing without meeting face to face has been incredible. You know, really, really Mm -hmm. is a game changer. Um, And I think that just is going to save a lot of time. I think it's going to help with international flows of investment. Um, When you're used to speaking to someone via Zoom, they may as well be in Scandinavia, they may as well be in the US. Um, So I think it's it's going to be really really positive for investment. We also just did a study with Connected with our investment network. And... Oh, do you know, I don't want to give you the wrong the wrong figure, um, and and I will I will follow back up with you guys. But I think it was over seventy percent of our investors are intending to invest more in twenty twenty one than they did in twenty nineteen. So, because you've had some amazing businesses just grow so quickly and so virtually over this year, it's just shown people. I mean, you look at stories like Hopin, you know, fat business founded in twenty nineteen, just raised a four hundred mil Series C. Um, now, when startups go quickly, I think you'll see them go quicker than ever, which is good for investor appetite as well. Interesting. Very interesting. And I think the change with COVID and all the, well, like you say, uh, you don't have to jump on a train to go to go visit. It's all been virtually now. And that's actually completely changed how we're going to be doing everything moving forward. You're not going to spend an hour to a meeting, a couple of hours there, and then an hour back. That's most of your day gone already. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting and moving forward there's going to be some new habits it's a great mindset can you can you comment a bit a bit about mindset because I think spe- certainly in uh, the COVID's tested all of us in different ways I mean I think I can relate to what you're talking about with with COVID with the impact on Flexi I think there's some things we've done so much faster uh, you mm-hmm. know accelerating you know our retail onboarding and everything else uh, everyone's going mm-hmm. digital so I think you know we've we've got a taste of you know, it's actually been an amazing opportunity for us, um, and actually create a bit more efficiency in our work in our in our work days. You know, I before COVID, I was jumping on my motorbike at five fifteen in the morning, gunning down to Shoreditch, you know, and then gunning back in the evening. And you know, I've now got. I mean, okay, I miss going on my bike, but um, I've got an extra three hours <laughs> to to work. You know, so uh, so um, yeah. Out of interest, Harry, you know, you mentioned that obviously your business was. Uh, impacted by COVID, how does that look now moving forward? And one of the things that I'm really interested by um, in businesses like yours 
is did you try and pivot saying how are we going to make this work in the meantime or is the thought you know what it's actually a great business we've just got to wait for this to blow over to be honest yeah i mean when when the lockdown hit the the original business which was very like events focused as mentioned in the beginning completely stopped everything was cancelled and it was more of a okay we need to I had it was an idea that had been kind of playing around sort of in the head for a couple of years actually and it was sort of this is an opportunity just to to give it a go I mean I had all the time back from all events and any speaking or any opportunities that were cancelled and actually it's completely changed the way I'm now moving forward the the original company may start up again but we've we've completely changed our direction and the, the cocktail experience at home is, is, is going to be growing and we've got huge plans now for, for moving forward for next year for the subscription model, um, which is where we want to get investors involved. And it's actually f- from a sort of a survival, a pivot point where we didn't really know how it was to be received to now looking at getting investment and growing it yeah. sort of usually in this year and, and moving forward. So it's been a really interesting change and a very unexpected sort of past year, really. Amazing. And will you go back to the events business will you bring that back or is the focus now you know we've 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 loved the pivot this is what we do to be honest i think it's it's the it's the latter it's we've loved the pivot and we've actually the potential we can see with this with this movement but also i think it's interesting that because of all the events stopping that market to do the home kind of cocktail experience Mm -hmm. has has grown more there are other companies popping up doing this sort of home experience which has started to sort of create a market for it Mm -hmm. and we 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 love obviously love doing the events and, and the front facing thing. And we think that there'll be some opportunities to do some select events. We've got a couple of gym festivals booked, but I think for us, it's going to be is that home experience. It's that bringing that mixology to people at home. And that's the stuff that we've, we've loved and we're probably going to continue with that moving forward. Yeah. You've, you've had lots of success, Harry, haven't you with um, actually contacting employers to kind of treat their staff to like cocktail surprise mm-hmm. cocktail kits showing up. Um, and yeah. you had a really busy month in December. I mean, Harry's done so well, um, you know, on a on a shoestring and, and getting the, getting the business. You know, um, we you know we're hoping to get uh, Harry's product on our on Flexi soon. Great, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, no, it's an interesting time. But Roy, just to jump back to this connected, and unfortunately, we are getting to the end of the hour. It's absolutely flown. But for someone as mentioned in this position. How do I get involved with Connected? How do our listeners get involved with Connected? And, and where can they find out more information? Yeah, so we're on connected.co and connected is spelled C-O-N-N-E-C-T-D. So no last E, so it's sufficiently techy. Um, so it's <laughs> connected.co and we try and be as democratic as possible in terms of our pricing. So we, we did a, a piece in Forbes back end of last year and we were described there as, as network by subscription. And this goes back to so much of what we were discussing right at the start of uh, right at the start of this show, which is you know getting access to those networks. We know they make a world of difference. How can you do them? So we, we've made it as democratic as possible, working out to about £20 a month um, for our startups to join. Um, every What we also do is everyone is, is sort of pre-vetted, pre-qualified on the investor side, which is, I think, really, really important because, you know, you don't want founders having to waste their time. And we've seen other people make plays in this space where if you don't do that, that bit of um, quality assurance on all angles, then it can be um, a really negative experience for founders. And, and we're, we're very, very founder centric. We really want to help the, the entrepreneurial way, which is going to take 
2021 by storm. We, we want to help, help as much as possible. So um, you can go straight to connected.co. You can go through that sort of verification process um, on, on the platform and get directly signed up. Yeah. Brilliant. And actually, I have to say, I've experienced it. Um, and I think it's really good value. It was painless. There's been great responsive customer service. Uh, there's some great investors on the platform. And all the other, you know, my, my alternative options, you know, people want thousands of pounds or whatever. And, and this is just like right on the money. You know, I said yes immediately. Um, it's like what Rowie said, it's like it's a no brainer because it saves me time. Um, so obviously, uh, we're, we're early stage, but the experience so far and meeting uh, some of Rowie's team has been really positive. Um, and this is even before, I mean, I think. Uh, when we first just when we first spoke, we you know it was clear we wanted to ha- have you on the on Rocket Pod, Roy. Uh, mm-hmm. But then uh, you know I've actually experienced a connected platform and it's really good, so I recommend it uh, just from my you know personal experience at Flexi. And hopefully it will be your fifty first fifty uh, first business, Roy. That's it. <laughs> that'd Absolutely. Be, that'd be awesome. That's awesome. Spot on. So, so Peter, you've been um, you've been conspicuous in your silence. Um, you must have a question for Roy. I got a question. Uh, my anxiety was building through the whole episode, waiting for the time. I feel like I need some kind of um, uh, theme tune. A theme tune when it comes <laughs> in. Um, yeah, maybe. I guess this we're kind of wrapping up, but uh, I kind of want to go back to when you mentioned um, about uh, learning that you had ADHD and kind of the maybe what it was like before you knew. That and then after you kind of got the official stamp of approval in that kind of way. Um, I just say that from my personal experience, and I know that it's not quite the same, but um, going through the schooling system and not really understanding school and getting to university and um, finding out I had dyslexia and being surrounded mm-hmm. by, so I studied photography and being on a photography course and maybe 10, 15, 20 of my friends all kind of at the same time got this uh, stamp of approval for dyslexia and it mm. just really was like ah okay now everything makes sense um and uh also kind of to preface this i, I went to a talk uh, maybe i don't know when it was in 2019 and there was a guy there called mills who runs an agency called mm-hmm. us two and uh mm-hmm. his he was doing a talk and the first thing was he's like i've got adhd this is going to be a bit all over the place and his talk was maybe 20 slides and he's going to 19 he's going back to two he's flicking all over the place i was just so so kind of fascinated by someone giving a a lecture or a talk and it's not in order and it's not reading from the notes it's just kind of putting out there so i guess my question uh yeah after all of that is how does that kind of manifest itself in your day-to-day now now that you know that you have this thing and how do you kind of manage it and just allow it to be in a certain way? That's, that's great, Peter. And thank you so much for sharing your own experience there as well. And I, you know, from, from personal experience, well, it's such a light bulb moment, isn't it? Where you just realize that, right, this adds up because I think it's so frustrating to know that you are capable of doing so many things, but it just not happening for you in one, in, in some areas, you know, and you just, you just don't understand why. And then once you, once you get it, and I was so fortunate to get that, stamp of approval as, as you've put it you know at the age of 15 when i was you know at the time where I was, I was about to be kicked out of school and taught for being disruptive and, and being you know naughty or whatever because you just can't concentrate and you can't do those things and once you realize that okay you know there are certain types of thinking associated with adhd and rather than trying to fit 
you know, square pegs and round holes and, and just understand that, right, you need to work with that and you need to just um, uh, empower that way of thinking to, to work for you. It, it, it is life-changing, right? It is life-changing and, and a lot of it adds up. So I think, yeah, I encourage anyone, if you, if you do think that you might have one of these, um, I know it's, it's called a disorder in ADHD, but um, if, if you've got something like this, you know, go and explore it because it might be the most life-changing thing that happens to you. And might, all these things might start making sense as to why they weren't adding up before. So, uh, yeah, I, com I completely agree with you, Peter, in terms of, of your experience there. Nice. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, definitely, as you say, a light bulb moment uh, when you discover these things and the, the stigma kind of goes. Like, I remember if, if I'd had that test at school when I was 14, 13, 14, I would have protected it. But then uh, maybe it was a university, we did get a grant for a free laptop. So you're like... Maybe there's a bit of encouragement there to kind of do the test uh, to get that nice shiny <laughs> nice. new MacBook Pro. But um, yeah, no. yeah, nice. Awesome, Roy. I'm a f we are sadly pretty much out of time. But two more things. One, can you leave our audience with one bit of advice? <laughs> Work harder. <laughs> Brilliant. Straight to the point. Awesome. And if people want to follow your journey you personally where can they go do you have linkedin social media yeah get me on linkedin and i i love to speak to to as many founders as possible it genuinely makes my day so i, I have um yeah I, I feel have free to reach question. out if, if you were to uh, awesome meet someone with a, a coffee anyone oh. um who would that be do you know what i would love to go for coffee with gordon ramsay um i know that's such a a stupid answer in many ways but i think um obviously a very entertaining person and you know I, I do i do i do love sort of comedy and i do love that that side of things i think he's a really really funny person but he's also an amazing businessman he's also an amazing businessman incredible entrepreneur built an absolute empire by the age of, of you know 28 29 and i think um although he's very good at uh making a caricature of himself yeah. i actually think he's an incredibly incredibly savvy businessman well thank you so much for uh for, for coming on rocket pod it's been an absolute pleasure we've learned a lot and we've had some we've had fun so uh and and hope hopefully we can loop back Absolutely. with you in a year or two or whatever, so much, whatever it feels right and um, and learn the, the next phase of connected and, and and learn about all your successes and 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 the wonderful people you've met along the way amazing thank you so much guys really appreciate it Thank you for listening to today's episode of RocketPod. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the episodes that we've got coming out, all the conversations um, and much, much more, the best thing to do is check out our social media and give us a follow. You can find us at We Are RocketPod on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Or alternatively, check out our website at rocketpod.uk. Thank you as always to our sponsor, Flexi. Now, where you want to manage all your subscriptions from a single dashboard, they are the perfect solution. There's subscriptions you can discover, They've got easy on and off functions um, and it's a really exciting app that we absolutely love to use over here at RocketPod HQ. Thank you as always for listening. Have an amazing week and we'll see you next time.